I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. The annual Cherry Blossom Festival has been an important event in Marshfield, Missouri for the past 16 seasons. The festival was born out of a dream from one of Marshfield's very own residents, Nicholas Inman. Each year, this three-day festival draws people from across the United States and other countries. Guests and visitors include presidential and other historical descendants, classic television, movie, and music personalities, and others. All of them come together in an atmosphere of warmth, community, and friendship in the heartland of America, Marshfield, Missouri. In this episode, our guest is Nicholas Inman, director and founder of the Cherry Blossom Festival. He also serves as senior minister of Elkland Independent Methodist Church and is the director of the Laura Ingalls Wilder Historic Home and Museum. I'd now like to welcome Nicholas Inman to our show. Welcome, Nicholas. Thank you, James. It's great to be with you. Well, it's great to have you here. Nicholas, I'd like to start off by asking you, where were you born and raised? I was born in Houston, Texas. And when I was just a few months old, uh, I was actually uh, born on March the 11th and ended up being in the hospital until Mother's Day. Came home as my mother's first Mother's Day present. And shortly after that, um, we moved back to Missouri to live with my grandparents um, and been here ever since. So your grandparents are originally from Missouri. Does your family yes. go back pretty far? Yes, we're, we're well-rooted here on my grandfather's side of the family. These would be my maternal grandparents. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's something to be said about being able to say you're a native Texan. But, you know, I've always really felt that I'm more Missourian than anything because I've been here for so many years. So, do you know, when your uh, your maternal side came to Missouri, do you know the history at all about that? So my mother's father's family is, you know, well-rooted in, in Missouri and have been here, you know, further than eight generations. Um, we've been very well-rooted here. Now, my mother's uh, mother's side of the family, uh, they have a different trek than just in Missouri. But for as far as my grandfather's side of the family, we're well-rooted here. Yeah. Very interesting. What about your dad's side? Where, where were they rooted? From? My father is from Kentucky. And so uh, they have a lot of history in the coal mining portion of Kentucky, and that's where they've been well-rooted. But, of course, my parents met in Texas, and so that's why I ended up being a Texan, actually. So there you go. Great. So, Nicholas, can you tell me about or tell us some of your favorite memories growing up? Oh, gosh. A flood of memories come to mind. I was fortunate to have known many generations of my family. We've always been a close-knit family. In fact, I remember my great-great-grandmother. So my best memories really come from family. We were a family that went to church every time the doors were open. And so uh, being raised by a single mother, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents and my great-grandparents. So uh, I really feel like that's where I learned my appreciation for history um, and much of the roots that I now enjoy as an adult uh, came from those formative years and from our 
from our church, from the family history, all those type of things. So my favorite memories really come from hearing my great-grandmother speak about being raised in a sod house in the middle of Nebraska and being born in a covered wagon, you know, and talking about playing and doing all sorts of fun things uh, as a child in Nebraska. I love all those things. And so um, I'd give anything to push rewind and get to go back and relive and appreciate so many of those things over again. But those uh, really are my best memories. My grandparents and my great-grandparents both lived um, in a small community, a rural community that was unincorporated called Dogwood and Dogwood, Missouri. And they lived not too far apart. So we spent lots of times in both places growing up in a rural area on a farm, uh, had lots of fun adventures. And, you know, my grandmother was not a typical grandmother. You know, she was out playing with me, doing lots of fun stuff. And so uh, I'm fortunate to have those kind of memories from childhood. And I wish every child had memories like that. You know, uh, there's something about how multi-generational experiences in a family. Well, I agree 100%. I've talked about it on my podcast before, but I used to sit at the feet of my grandparents and listen to stories. And fortunately, I used to like to ask them a lot of questions. Yeah, I understand. Oh, sure. I used to love it. And there was nothing more that I would prefer to do than to sit there and ask them questions. But now, as you said, as, a, as an adult, I wish I could press rewind and yes. ask them a lot more questions. You know, um, we just recently uh, had a, a death in our family. And my grandmother and my 13-year-old daughter, we went back to Nebraska, to Juanita, Nebraska, where my great-grandmother spent her growing up years yeah. and to go back and to look at the wheat field where your family originated on that side of the family to see where the sod house stood um you know th those are special memories and to have all those childhood stories come to life uh was just fantastic but you're right there's so many other things i wish i could go back and ask from that side of the family um you know from the missouri roots I live amongst so much of it. And so, uh, you know, my grandfather would be able to point out this is where this happened or this is where so-and-so lived. But to go back and see where my great-grandmother on the other side of the family, um, it's remarkable. And I, those are my favorite memories of, you know, she'd tell stories about going on dates with her older sister and riding in a buggy and they would hide in the back of the buggy and they didn't like the young man she was dating. So they would take their hat pins off and every time the buggy would jump, you know, the young man would sit down on one of their hat pins um, because they were trying to run him off, you know, just great fun stories or uh, she told about their mother had purchased a new pair of high heels, which was quite an expenditure. And they were given the task to plant the garden while while mom went to town. So they uh, conceived this bright idea to put on mom's high heels and walk in the garden uh in the high heels to make the holes and, and one of the other sisters would follow behind and put the seeds in the holes made by the high heels and how it wasn't a problem until the garden came up and the garden rows were all curved of course from how they were walking in these high heels you just have this visual of these little girls wearing mom's high heels trying to do these things and to see where all that happened you know it's just it was really really awesome and to see it with my grandmother and for my 13 year old to experience it. Uh, you know, I want her to have the memories that I had as a child to have a multi-generational experience. And 
uh, you know, not everybody's fortunate like that, but I feel like I had a great childhood filled with wonderful memories. Oh, you were blessed, certainly. I yes. think that's great. And to be able to to go, as you said, to see some of the places, uh, first of yeah. all, around you in Missouri, but also to go other places and find out where mm-hmm. other family came from. I don't know about you, but I don't need like perfect recreations of what things looked like. I can go out to a field, whether it be in Gettysburg or or some other place, Yorktown, and go to a field and just imagine what it was like. Sure. Yes. You know, the week before my daughter goes back to school every year, we have history day. And it's a day that she and I spend together and we retrace, you know, locally here in Missouri, all the places that have connections to our family from the cemetery to houses that I've lived in growing up to, you know, all these stories that I heard. And I think she gets bored with it. She's like, Oh dad, we just did that. But, you know, someday I think she'll appreciate hearing these stories. It's important to pass those on and that she has those memories. So, um, you know, I encourage people to do that. Have history day. And we bring pictures. I have a notebook of pictures and I'll say, you know, this is where aunt so-and-so lived or this is where grandma lived. You know, it's, it's fun. I just love that. Making memories is great. Oh, definitely. And I am sorry for your loss and your family. Thank you. Thank you. Nicholas, can you tell us a little bit about the, early hobbies or interests that you had as a kid growing up? And what are those interests now? Well, you know, when I was about in the fourth grade, I guess it was, and uh, I've been about 1991, President George H.W. Bush visited our town for the 4th of July. And up until until then, you know, I'd been what I would call a typical kid interested in, you know, typical games and things and toys and all that good stuff. But when the president came to town, that was a whole new ball game for me. And that's when the history switch really was flipped. And I was fascinated with it. All the preparations for the parade was able to be in the parade that day. The, I'll just add this to what I'm saying. The 4th of July is a big deal in Marshfield, Missouri. Oh. We have the oldest parade west of the Mississippi and it's, it's a big deal. And that's one reason the president chose to visit. Well, at the particular time the president visited, the mayor was my neighbor. And so I felt like I kind of got to watch everything from a different perspective, you know? And I remember thinking my neighbor was just the biggest celebrity in the world because he was standing on the stage with the president, you know? So that night, I remember after he left, he visited somewhere else. And for a town, which Marshall's probably about six to 7,000 people now, but then was much smaller in population. For 10,000 people to crowd onto our courthouse lawn to see the leader of the free world, that was huge. And, and you know, I remember seeing the press and the Secret Service and, and as a kid in the parade, all we had to go through. Well, that night, for the first time, I said to my mom, can we watch the news? I wanted to see what they were going to talk about. You know, I wanted to hear what the president had said. You know, I was interested. And from then on, every night, I wanted to watch the news because I felt connected to President Bush because he'd been to our town. Yes. And suddenly it was it was a whole different perspective. And then I had the bright idea as so so many people who get hit with this bug. Well, I'm just going to write to the president, see if he'll send me an autographed picture. Mm-hmm. My neighbor had encouraged me to do that. So I did. And I remembered the day that the package came in the mail, this big manila envelope from the White House. 
I could have died at the mailbox. You know, it, it was a big deal. And I was hooked from then on, on collecting autographs, about learning about history, you know, all of these things that just never were of any interest to me before, a whole new light. And I'll say during the parade, walking in front of the presidential reviewing stand, I remember thinking this may be my only chance in a lifetime to see a president and first lady up close. I'm going to wave at Barbara Bush. And I thought, well, no, everybody's going to laugh at you, you know, but I thought, I don't care. I may never get this opportunity again. And I wait, not only did I wave, I yelled out, hello, Mrs. Bush. And she pointed at me and waved. That was the biggest moment. It was just, it was fantastic. And years later, I told Mrs. Bush that story and how that I really felt those moments led to so much more interest. And, and, you know, if I had never been interested in history, we probably would have never had a cherry blossom festival, all those types of things. And she said, if I'd have known what that wave was going to cause, I would have never waved at you. Is what she said. <laughs> <laughs> but I really, I was just fascinated. And I remember before I re we reached the reviewing stand, I was with the 4-H in, in the parade and it was hot and we were kids. We'd walked a long ways and we kept having, we were behind going uphill behind the floats that were ahead of us and the secret service would pull up on their little four wheelers and say, if you kids don't stay behind that float, we will pull you out of the parade. We cannot have any gaps in the parade today. So we were exhausted by the time we reached the square where the president actually was located. And my mom was on the corner right before the reviewing stand and she stepped out of the crowd and tried to get me out of the parade because she'd had this parental fear that when the parade's over, how am I gonna find him? And so, I pretended like I didn't know her. I was, you know, I'd waited for hours. I was exhausted. I was going to see the president one way or the other. And my mom found me after the parade. She was so hopping mad at me because I hadn't gotten out of the parade, but I was on a high. Barbara Bush had waved at me and my mom wouldn't let me be in the parade for years because of that. But <laughs> it, it was the moment that I really fell in love with American history. It, it was, it was just awesome. It started the engine. It started the engine. It did. That's yep. a good way to say it. Yes. And it, it started an engine that's running today. So I'm assuming yes. I know very well, it's still a huge passion of yours. But yes. Yeah. Let me ask you this. So you, you had that experience. You love American mm -hmm. history. You've been surrounded by family and extended family with a lot of history to tell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about your educational pursuits? What did you do as far as uh, what you wanted to be when you grew up and where did you go to school? Well, okay. So the more interest that I became in learning about the presidency as a little boy in the fourth grade, I decided then I was going to be president. I wanted to be a politician. I studied everything I could about the presidency and that was what I had in mind. And when I uh, reached the age to graduate from high school, there was just never a question in my mind that I was going to be a politician and that was where the road was going to take me. And if I had to concede mentally that there would be another option, it would be to teach history. So, you know, Roy Blunt, Senator Roy Blunt was a history teacher in our town and, you know, I'd watched his political career. So that's, I think that's why I kind of had all this in the back of my mind. Well, that wasn't what happened at all. So, <laughs> I, when I was a senior, we had to volunteer so many hours in the elementary school to 
acquire um, so many hours towards projects we were working on. And I went back to my third grade classroom and I fell in love with the third grade. And so not only did I struggle with, I wanted to be a history teacher and a politician, but maybe I would be a third grade teacher. So I, I say all that because I went to college and took the traditional route of, you know, all your traditional classes and, and, and went to, to community college in Springfield. I figured I'd get the same basic classes there that you really would any other place. But before I went to community college, I thought I'm going to dip my toes into the waters uh, in Washington, D.C. and see how I like it in the nation's capital. And so I uh, did some internship, journalism internship there and quickly realized maybe I had bit off a dream that was going to be bigger than I thought it was going to be. Okay. You know, you, re- you study the stories of, you know, politicians of yesterday and uh, it seems so much more uh, it seems easier to <laughs> you reach the age to come to reality. And so uh, I realized really quickly that there were lots of frustrations in Washington and I covered lots of them. And I, I was homesick for, for Marshfield, just to be honest about it. Um, you know, to go from living in a small town to be thrust in the middle of the nation's capital was quite a change. Mm-hmm. I felt alone. I didn't know a lot of people, lots of things. So I thought, well, maybe I don't really want to take the political route. Maybe I could do something else to be just as effective in being a history maker or um, somebody who would make a difference in the nation. So, and, and which was always my goal in wanting to be a politician, right? You can do that in lots of different ways. So that's when I came home, went to community college. Uh, and by that point, everybody that I've ever known or been related to they all know that you want to be president and that you want to be a politician. And you hear that all the time. And I felt such pressure about that. And if I didn't pursue that in my education and in my, my path, I felt like I might be a failure to people because they really had believed in that, you know? Well, while I was in community college, I began teaching Sunday school. And I, in my church, I, which is the Methodist church, I noticed that we had a lot of church members who were in the nursing home who still were sharp, you know, physically they couldn't do lots of things, but they enjoyed participation when we would do church activities there. And I thought, you know, a lot of these people were Sunday school teachers, preachers, things of that nature. Their mind's still active and they want to learn. I'm going to start a Sunday school class for that age group at the nursing home. Well, it quickly became something far bigger than just a Sunday school class for the members of our church there. It became a Sunday school class for the whole nursing home. And while teaching and while studying and all those things, I quickly realized that I was feeling led and called to be a minister. But I wouldn't really say anything about to anybody because remember, I was supposed to be a politician. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Now, that's my grandmother always says that she prayed me out of politics is what she'll tell you. Um, and one day in my Sunday school class, one of the retired ministers said to me, I want you to come and speak to me after class today. And I thought he didn't agree with something I've said or, you know, all these things went through my mind. I went to his room. He said, here's the deal. It's clear to me, it's written all over you that you're running from God and you're being called to the ministry. And I hadn't said anything to anybody. And he said, I know that because I've been in your shoes. 
And you need to learn to be Nicholas and let God be God. And your path's going to be a lot smoother. Well, that was really a slap upside my head because I thought, you know, maybe this is a clear sign what I felt was being sent to me. So then I began to change my whole educational pursuit to be, you know, um, to go into ministry, went and visited with my minister, began the routes within the Methodist church to, for education, followed all the chains that I needed to within the denomination, soon was appointed to be a local pastor and began to study within the denomination. Wonderful. Which, which led to uh, where I am today, having pastored at the same church for 17 years, which seems impossible to me. And, you know, that whole time I still felt like um, I felt drawn towards being a teacher. Mm-hmm. I did end up teaching mu- elementary music for a year because I was bivocational, had um, preschool through the third grade to teach music at the Christian school. That was an experience. Teaching wasn't for me. Um, <laughs> and then I, uh, it just wasn't. I thought it was, it wasn't. Then I still felt maybe I was supposed to be political to some degree. Served two terms on the Marshfield City Council. They always say, if you really want to learn government, start at a local level. Yes. And that was good for me. So I just continued the route. I feel like I was probably always meant to go to begin with. And it took my educational path and uh, a roller coaster fashion in all kinds of directions. But uh, I feel I made the right decisions and maybe a day will come when I'll feel led to go back to those original dreams. But, you know, for the, the day of the average man to become president is just about extinct, really. A lot of it's about big monies and influences and all those things. And I feel where I'm where I need to be. And I feel my educational path went the direction it was supposed to be. And sometimes hearing that from other people is just exactly what you need to hear. Definitely. Now let's talk about the cherry blossom festival. You, you let it slip out a moment ago about the cherry blossom festival. You, you said you went to Washington, DC. Mm-hmm. No, there are cherry blossoms down there, and there's a history behind the cherry blossoms down there, how they got there. But there's sure. also a tie between Washington, D.C., cherry blossoms, and Marshfield, and what you're doing today. Can you tell us about that connection and that journey? So mentioning being in D.C. and becoming homesick, uh, came home to Marshfield and felt like you know, everybody would say, why are you back? You know, there was a big party before I left. You know, it was like, it was a big deal. And I thought, now I'm missing being in Washington. You know, I'd watch the news and think, oh, I wish I was covering that. Or, you know, I was kind of fickle, I guess, at what I wanted to do. So I thought, well, you know, we were discussing beautification efforts in Marshfield. Uh, We were becoming a tree city USA and lots of other things that I was involved with. And I thought, why don't we just plant cherry blossoms in Marshfield? And I'll have the best of both of my favorite places. I guess it was kind of selfish, really. But we did. And that has led to a whole new path. And what, um, I guess I should really emphasize this, we planted three varieties of cherry blossom trees. One reason we did that was Marshfield didn't have anything going on in the spring. Fourth of July was a big deal to us, but we didn't have any tourism dollars in the spring. So... We discussed that we'd plant three varieties of cherry blossom trees that would bring guests all for a whole month of blooming season because these trees would bloom in stages. And then at the end of that 
blooming season we needed to have a festival or something and so that's you know was the thought process and we would get a whole month out of that well little did i know how that would change my life i had no idea the people i would meet the way that it would become a family project all of those things um you know sometimes uh, <laughs> the best laid plans are not the ones that ever come to path in your life you know Absolutely. but the Trey Blossom festival has been a great blessing so let's just back up a little drop uh, sure can you tell us how cherry blossoms got into washington dc sure uh in 1912 uh first lady helen taft it was a project that where she worked uh on accepting this gift from from japan to plant all these cherry blossom trees which you see prominently along the tidal basin it's become such a tourist attraction to washington dc and if you read your news today you know that they're having issues with flooding around the Tidal Basin area, and they're discussing the future of the trees and where to move them. But the tourist dollars that come from those trees today have such a financial impact upon our nation's capital. And they're now even developing, talking about these variety of trees, uh, they in for the 100th anniversary of the planting of the trees, they developed a new strand of tree called the Helen Taft variety hmm. that's supposed to be uh, longer bloom, longer lasting, because... Uh, they want to get all the money they can out of that season of blooming with everybody coming to town for business and things. And so it's also supposed to be more disease resistant. And we're looking at those varieties for Marshfield as well, too. So um, it's really interesting. And we actually learned about this variety from Macon, Georgia, which has a huge cherry blossom festival, which is the pinkest party in the world um, uh, in Macon, Georgia. So it's interesting how Mrs. Taft's action in 1912 would end up impacting so many different places in the country. And I tell people all the time, they'll say, how did you meet so-and-so? And I'll say, well, it was really Helen Taft's fault. <laughs> and it's true. It really, it really was. So that's uh, kind of a long story short, but that's how it happened. Well, that's a wonderful story. I had heard about Mrs. Taft being involved in cherry blossoms coming to Washington, D.C. Yeah. I remember my parents taking us down there as kids uh, back in the 60s. And I remember beautiful cherry blossoms. Oh, yes. Phenomenal. They're breathtaking. Yeah, they're breathtaking. And the three varieties that we have, the first is called Okami, and they look like little pink bells, mm -hmm. completely different than what you'd see in Washington, D.C. Then we have the Yoshinos, which are the ones you would see around the tidal basin. And then the last that bloom, which are closer in bloom to our actual festival, are called Kawanzan, and they look like pink double carnations. So really, it's a whole variety. But if you ask the average person to talk to you about cherry blossoms, they're going to probably immediately identify with the Yoshino variety they would see in D.C. Uh, and, you know, our weather is so crazy anymore, especially here in Missouri. Rarely do we even have blooms on the tree when it's cherry blossom time. So we tell everybody, you know, come early, but come back for the festival because we always laugh that we're going to get out the hot glue guns and go around and, and put petals all over the trees because <laughs> people will say, do you really have cherry blossom trees? Every time I've been here for a festival, I've not seen one bloom. Uh, but this year we did have some coins and blooms on and that was kind of nice, but um, the Cherry Blossom Festival has really taken on a life its own. Yes. And little did I know from that experience of going to Washington and all those things that would come to pass. And Mary Eisenhower, Eisenhower's granddaughter, I call her the mother of the festival. 
Because while um, working at Walmart one evening, we were discussing Eisenhower and those who worked in my immediate circle at Walmart, they didn't know who I was talking about. And I called Mary Eisenhower, who lived in Kansas City, I'd read an article about her, looked her up and said, you need to come to our town and speak about Eisenhower at the school. We've got a problem. And she did. And while she was here, she made this comment that really stuck with me. Because remember, this cherry blossom planting and stuff's already on my mind. And she says, if you're a historian and you're researching the American presidency, you have to travel to all these various locations, birthplaces, grave sites, libraries. There's not a central location where you can go and learn about everybody. You've got to travel all over the country. And the average American usually cannot visit all those sites. So in talking about we needed to have a festival at the end of this blooming season, Mary's comments was really stuck there. And I thought, you know, when you think about cherry blossoms, you think about the nation's capital and you think about history. Why couldn't we do something besides just vendors and crafts and all those things and do something that nobody else is doing? We are the central place in the nation. President Bush called us during his visit, the heartbeat of the nation. And let's have a festival here where you could learn all about all of those men and their families and so much more about American history. So that's when those two ideas came together. And I thought we've hit on something. And here we are all these years later, still having a cherry blossom festival. Wow. So uh, when was your very first cherry blossom festival? And what was that experience? Well, so this was our 16th festival. Okay. And so in conjunction with Mary's comment, I thought we need a tourist draw that's going to be beyond the blooming season. So let's put together a museum and library in our town that would focus on the lives of the American presidents and their families, and we'll call it the National First Families Library and Museum. And this will be a place people can visit all year long and then can be a place that would host events during the Cherry Blossom Festival. Mm -hmm. I envisioned we'd have a gift shop where we would sell books and memorabilia and stuff all year long from those who have been featured at the festival. We could have speakers all year long. So I've mentioned when I was in the fourth grade writing and getting that first autograph, I have a pretty extensive collection of presidential memorabilia. And I thought this collection will be the heart of the museum collection. And then we'll add to it with revolving exhibits and things. So for several years, we rented a location on the city square and uh, it was open. And especially during the festival, it was a prominent place. And in recent years, um, we still have a board that is meeting. And our goal is someday we will have a physical location that will be encompassing enough to do all those things. But the place that we had was mainly just to visit. It wasn't a gift shop or any of those type of things. So I thought this first festival, when you have an opening of a presidential library, you always see the current president and all the living presidents join together. It's become a, you know, an annual gathering of the fraternity. Right. And I thought, we'll never get the president and the former presidents to come to Marshfield for such an occasion. But I bet we could get representatives of each administration if we tried. And that was going to be the kickoff at the first festival is the announcement that we were going to do this library and museum. So I began to contact presidential libraries and birthplaces all over the country and 
they would write back and say, this is who our family's official representative is. It's, you know, Grover Cleveland's grandson or whatever. And they began to reach out to me. Well, then trying to convince these descendants to come to Marshfield, first of all, they've never heard of Marshfield, Missouri. <laughs> and two, you know, why would you want to leave Maryland and Baltimore to travel to the middle of the nation to nowhere for your vacation? That took some... Uh, my grandmother's always said I could sell ice to Eskimos, and I, I, I felt like that's where that trait probably came to, to fruition. So here they all came together, and it was a big gathering. You know, we had, uh, it was 30-some administrations gathered together. Really? 37? Big, yeah, really? it was a wow. big gathering. Some were grandchildren, some were great-grandchildren, some were nieces, nephews, you know, it, all kinds of relations. But they were each recommend. I've always asked this, and I receive emails all year long. You know, I'm the third cousin of Grant or whatever. And people always say, how do you know that these people are really related? These original people all came recommended as official representatives from their sites. Right. So that was good. And we've always stayed with that. You know, if a new descendant comes, it's because either one of the existing ones have recommended them or a site has said, we recommend you add this person to the equation if somebody passes away or something. So when they gathered together, I thought this would be a one-time kickoff inaugural thing that was going to give us lots of publicity for the festival. I never envisioned they'd want to come back. It was hard enough to get them there the first time. But when they came, they'd never had an opportunity like that before. Yeah. Yeah. Because when is there an opportunity for all of them to be together, you know? Right. And, and since that time, there have been things that have developed like uh, there's the Society of Presidential Descendants that now exist, things of that nature. But none of those things had happened at that point. And there had been a, a big gathering in New York City at one point when it was an anniversary of George Washington swearing in. Uh, a bunch had assembled and were in a parade. Um, but a lot of those people had passed away. So suddenly they understand each other and the pressures with that, that role, if you want to say, so to speak. Um, that somebody like me wouldn't understand. You know, I've never had to live with following in somebody's footsteps like Eisenhower or Hoover or somebody. And so they suddenly had a camaraderie. And on the presidential panel that now traditionally closes the festival, where they all sit on stage and answer questions, one of them asked me from the stage, can we come back? And then they all start saying, yeah, can we do this again? And I thought, I'm such dumbfounded. Yes, of course you can come back. And some of them have been coming back for 16 years. Many of them have stayed with the same families each year that they have visited. Wow. Um, we had a family that had the Truman and Roosevelt room in their house because that's where those relatives always stayed, you know. And it, it was a twofold thing. Not only had many of them felt connected to coming to a small town and small community, they had host families, a lot of them. And that caused the local people to brush up on their history because they were going to host Truman's grandson or whatever. Mm -hmm. They wanted to be able to talk to him about something at dinner and they became friends. And suddenly some of those who they have stayed with have now gone and visited, you know, with those they've hosted for years. Uh, we've had people pass away from Marshfield who have hosted people mm -hmm. and those descendants will come back for funerals and things that were beyond festival time. We've seen a strong connection. But I, and I may have shared this with you before, my favorite festival memory, which I'm often asked about, comes from that first year. 
when we gathered them all together, we bust them around town and they had a police escort. And it, you know, it was really a cool, cool thing. One of them said to me, you all have been so kind to us. Can we do anything in return? Mm -hmm. I said, the only thing I ask is when you're all on stage and you're setting an order, when the anthem is sung, that you all put your hands over your heart. It's a, going to be a real moment of patriotism yes. and it'll make a great picture for American history. Okay, they all agreed they would do that. So we're backstage and I'm putting everybody in chronological order. And suddenly it's, you know, my grandpa ran against your grandpa or my uncle hated your uncle. And, you know, but they're laughing about it. You know, suddenly we've forgotten that we're Republicans and Democrats and we're celebrating history. Yes. The things that unite us and not the things that divide us. Right. And the community choir was present. They were to sing the anthem and they were to sing the battle hymn of the Republic. And the presidential descendants were coming down the hallway from the backstage, getting ready to take their seats on stage. And the choir was lining both sides of the hallway. And I was leading the line. And somebody in that hallway began to clap. And suddenly, it still gives me goosebumps. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, the whole hallway was clapping. They realized the moment that they were witnessing. That was big for our town. Yeah. It, was, it was a big moment for, for our nation, really. And and when I look back and I could see in many of their eyes, tears and pride, and they understood that moment too. So it really shouldn't have amazed me, I guess, that they asked that it be repeated um, because they realized it was a moment that transcended anything that they were there just to represent one administration. Wow. So that moment, my favorite moment of the festival um, has been what keeps me marching forward when you get stressed and you get frustrated and you realize that I wasn't called to be a politician apparently, but I often feel like I've been called to be a caretaker of their stories. Yes. It was just politics in a different way. That's great. Nicholas, you know, I'm sorry to interrupt. But no, go ahead. I'm trying to picture that moment and I feel goosebumps from it as yeah. well. Because as you said, it wasn't just the individual administrations. It, it was the collective Almost it was family of people who yeah. represented our, you know, leaders of our nation over the, you know, the last two centuries, just been an amazing opportunity for the people who are there to see all those different descendants all together, like a family. Mm -hmm. And, you know, many of those individuals are still very connected to the politics of their relative. Yes. And there have been times in these 16 years when we've seen great national divides and we've seen very ugly and contentious elections, when we've seen questions about uh, all sorts of things in regards to elections and emotions on high. But I think what's been remarkable about that moment and every year since then is that we as a nation need those moments. Yes, We need those collective times when we can come together and celebrate together that that unites us as Americans. And I think that's what's kept them coming back every year. I remember the year that President Obama first you know, ran for office. Um, what a contentious time it was between some of those individuals who were out campaigning. And to see them be able to lay that aside and laugh together um, was good to see. Yes. And then in recent times to watch those things unfold. So that's, 
I'm always asked, so just give me a statement that would be your theme. And I go back to what I just said. We celebrate the history that unites us and not that that divides us because so much could divide us. I mean, we're so mixed in what we offer at the Cherry Blossom Festival. You know, Jefferson Davis's great-great-grandson is there seated next to Ulysses Dietz, Grant's great-great-grandson, and they're friends. Yeah. And you see Dred Scott's great-great-granddaughter standing there talking to them as if they're all neighbors, you know? And I think so often about Dr. King's speech of I Have a Dream mm -hmm. and the things that he outlines in there about coming to pass that he would like to see happen someday for his children. And I see those moments at the Cherry Blossom Festival when descendants of slave owners and those whose ancestors were in bondage come together and celebrate history and be friends. And those are powerful healing moments of American history. I'm glad we've had them in Marshfield. And where, what's a better place to orchestrate them all than the heartbeat of the nation? Uh, wow, um, that's amazing. Yeah. You know, it, it, instead of seeing political parties when you look at the other person, you're seeing another human being and you're there united yes. as Americans in the heartbeat of America. That's perfect. That's right. Perfect. And, and it needs to happen. And in fact, this last presidential election, some of them said to me, you know, I was really cautious about attending because I thought the conversations could turn political very easily. And I really needed the weekend that I had. And, you know, I, I think we need more moments like that. So I feel as the caretaker of those stories and of those moments, um, I wasn't called to be president of the free world, but I, I really feel like I was called to be president of the Cherry Blossom Festival because it's a whole different calling, but it's keeping peace and preserving history and celebrating the, the place that I love and wanted to make a difference in to begin with. Mm -hmm. I'm just doing it so other generations feel the same way that that little fourth grader did in the 4th of July parade. Yeah, that's terrific. Nicholas, yeah. I'm, I'm so happy there's somebody like you out there doing oh. That. oh, it's so valuable. Really, really. Hey, you're doing the same thing. You're just doing it in a different format. Well, I'm, tr I'm trying, I'm trying because I think storytelling is just so valuable. As you said before, even when you said you, you know, you sat there and listened to your, uh, your relatives speaking and now you're getting people telling stories and we're all learning yeah. from, from people whose families have gone through things and families have been part of this nation's history. And that's just so mm -hmm. valuable and, and getting them sort of gathered together and, you know, joining friends together, people who became friends because of the tree blossom, not only with fellow descendants, but with people in Marshfield. It's great. It really is. And you know, my grandmother has a saying, learn from others mistakes because you'll never live long enough to make them all yourself. True. And I feel that's why history offers us uh, teachable moments to keep from making the errors of the past. Um, and it's great to be able to see us hear from primary sources quite frequently valuable lessons that apply today. History is not just names and numbers. You know, it is storytelling, as you said, and it's uh, valuable lessons often in those storytelling. And, you know, to be able to hear from generations that are too quickly gone, um, you know, we're a young nation. And it wasn't very long ago, we had Lion Tyler there, President Tyler's grandson, 
at the table to think we're just generations removed we've had children of civil war veterans Mm -hmm. people who knew their fathers we've had a widow of a civil war veteran all these people come to the table it's remarkable to be able to hear from those primary sources because like that they're gone so those teachable moments we need to eat them up and and really soak them up because um, they they carry us on into the future to lead this country to formulate new leaders and new citizens. Agreed. Now, Nicholas, you've branched beyond political to other interesting people who, many of whom are very well known to people in my age group. Can you name some of those personalities that you've brought to the table? Oh, sure. Um, Well, and let me tell you why first. I learned early on in the festival when I would say, oh, we're getting together all these descendants of presidents some people, they'd have a blank look on their face. Not everybody was a history geek like I was. You know, they said, oh, yeah, that's great. But I decided I had an idea years ago that I would like to see us do this project as a draw to our downtown, um, Stars in the Walk of Fame, which we would honor six famous Missourians each year with stars, kind of like the Hollywood Walk of Fame, but just for Missourians. And so I thought, well, we'll do that during the Cherry Blossom Festival, and that'll be a great big ceremony that will draw in people who others would come to see. And one of them the first year was Betty Lynn, who many will know as Thelma Lou from the Andy Griffith show. Oh, absolutely. And I noticed that first year, Thelma Lou resonated with everybody, whether they liked history or not. Everybody wanted to meet Thelma Lou. Yes. I remember while she was here, we, we took her to visit the then Missouri governor, Matt Blunt, and then we went to the Missouri state Capitol. Suddenly these elected officials, these distinguished men were like little kids, you know, like family, you know, they were all excited. Some of them ran us down in the parking lot of the state Capitol because they just had to meet Thelma Lou. And I learned right then people will come to see those who classic television stars that they feel connected to from childhood that wouldn't come to hear um, you know, somebody from Calvin Coolidge's family or from John Adams's family, but they would come to see those individuals, those who weren't interested in history. Mm-hmm. So I thought history is a broad subject. Yes, it is. Our culture is a part of our history. The television shows that define generations become cultural stars, icons, television icons, national treasures to us. I mean, who wouldn't deem Andy Griffith and Don Knox as national treasures, you know? When you visit the Smithsonian, we have a whole building that's dedicated to things like that. Um, Mr. Roger Sweater, the Ruby Slippers from The Wizard of Oz, you know, Archie Bunker's chair, all those things. So I thought, well, if we're going to celebrate history, we need to celebrate all of it. And maybe people will come in to see somebody from the Waltons or Little House on the Prairie or the Andy Griffith show. And then they'll stay for the other teachable moments. And that's what happened. They'd say to me, well, you know, I came to see Thelma Lou. But then I heard you interview Roosevelt's grandson. And wow, that was interesting. Yeah, I hated history. You know, they'll often say I hated history in school. I had a boring history teacher. Well, I never had a boring history teacher. My history teachers were phenomenal. But if you don't have teachers like that, you can easily hate history because it does become names and numbers to you and you don't, you're not interested. But when you hear, see history come to life and storytelling as you're doing, uh, it's a different manner. But the key was to find the hook to bring them in. And that was 
Don Wells, who was Marianne on Gilligan's Island, Richard Thomas, who was John Boy on the Waltons. We've had most all the cast of the Waltons. Um, Little House on the Prairie, many, as I said, from there. We've had Nellie Olson. We've had Al Manzo's, Dean Butler. Um, you know, so many different people. Max Gale from Barney Miller. You name the show, we've probably had it represented. Marion Ross from Happy Days. You know, shows that speak to multi-generations. Butch Patrick, who was Eddie Munster on The Munsters. Um, just, I could name them off so many that have visited our town. And uh, they want to come back most of the time. So now we have an autograph show built into the festival <laughs> that is just about our classic television stars. And not just classic television stars, but classic movies. Carolyn Grimes, who was Zuzu Bailey, Jimmy Stewart's little girl on It's a Wonderful Life, who is a Missourian, former Missourian. You know, we've reached out to, we've had actors from Gone with the Wind. In fact, our festival had a very close relationship with Dame Olivia de Havilland, oh. uh, who never visited the festival, but participated electronically many times. Um, just all sorts of different connections to classic Hollywood and classic movies, classic television, um, authors, you know, our literature is part of our history. It's interesting to see how it has evolved. It's become a, a web. And I always say it's like you put history in a blender and it blows up for three days because, you know, one segment of the schedule may be that you're seeing a panel of World War II veterans. And then the next panel, you know, it's a, a whole group of classic television stars. Or it may be you're hearing uh, about, I wrote a play a few years ago called Dear Mrs. Lincoln. And the cast was made up of some classic television stars. You might see a panel about that. And then the next thing we're interviewing the individual who was handcuffed to Lee Harvey Oswald. You know, it's just history in such a broad term. And it's almost more than you can describe to somebody. George Cleveland, Grover Cleveland's grandson, mm -hmm. said to me after the first year of the festival, flying home back to Tamworth, New Hampshire, he'd been to the first festival, met Thelma Lou met Mickey Carroll, who was one of the last surviving munchkins from the Wizard of Oz, and then had all these other presidential relatives he became acquainted with. He said, how do you describe to somebody that you've just spent the weekend with a munchkin, Thelma Lou, and all these presidential descendants? It's really hard to describe. And one of our Marshfield residents said to me the other day, he lives in D.C. now, but he's a Marshfield alum, and he said, I'm often picked on for being from a small town, a Mayberry type setting. And he said, I took the greatest joy a few years ago, emailing my colleagues as I left one of the history convocations of the festival. And I said to them, I just watched Winston Churchill's great grandson introduce Eisenhower's granddaughter, who then interviewed Nikita Khrushchev's son on stage. What happened at your high school today? <laughs> it's amazing it those, my mind those are moments that you just how do you describe them to people you oh, know and i tell you nicholas you said history in a blender that's the way yeah. i think of it and i'm a baby boomer i'm a i would i guess i'm a late baby boomer i was born in the late 50s but we didn't have computers or cell phones and all that stuff growing up so 
uh, we, we used to spend a lot of time in front of the TV set, you know, and of course, <laughs> sure. the people you're talking about, the uh, Eddie Munster and uh, watching a wonderful life and the Waltons, Little House yeah. on the Prairie. I mean, these are shows we used to watch and I used to be a huge fan of these shows. And I'm also a, a big presidential history geek like you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to me, that would be like almost a utopia (laughs) (laughs) right that's why i love cherry blossom time (laughs) people say how do you put together the schedule i say it's all the things i like so it is it's fun just it's not just one thing it's just so incredible i'm sure so much fun must be is there uh ample food at these events Oh gosh, we love to eat. You know, you never met a preacher that like to eat, right? So we eat lots of stuff. And really, I'll emphasize this. It was important to me when we started the festival, back to Mary's comment that the average American couldn't visit all these places. I wanted you to be able to bring your family and learn about the history of your country, whether you had 12 kids or you were a single individual. I wanted it to be affordable. So all those panels and presentations are free to attend except for the meals or if we do a concert or a play those things are all ticketed but to come and just see your favorite star interviewed or to attend the autograph show lots of autograph shows you have to pay you know an admission fee now you do have to buy if you want to purchase something from the celebrity you're purchasing a picture or an autograph or something but just to come in and see them there's no charge for that that's so important to me that that is maintained because i think everybody ought to have access to their history i just feel so passionate about that and we've we've had a lot of discussions about that as the years have gone by and costs to put on the festival and things go on but yes there are plenty of times to eat we have two free meals at the festival one is the traditional cherry blossom tea we always have a speaker and that's a big popular event, which was started by Thelma Lou. Uh, she commented the first festival. She She's Catholic. And she said, every church in this town hosted something but the Catholic church. And as she, my mother took her so she could attend mass while she was visiting in Marshfield. Right. And she cornered the Catholic priest afterwards and said the catholic church needs to do something during the cherry blossom festival so thus came forth the cherry blossom tea from that and the catholic ladies hosted that for years till it outgrew the facility and now there's a separate committee that just puts on the cherry blossom tea and this year keith thibodeau who played little ricky on i love lucy yes i remember him was this yeah he was the speaker you might also remember he was opie's little friend from the andy griffith show so he was a great classic television star but that's one free meal that we do and then on saturday morning of the festival my church always hosts the presidential prayer breakfast and that's a free breakfast for anybody that wants to attend and this year roy rogers and dale evans's daughter was the keynote speaker and we take donations at those things like the prayer breakfast goes to support zuzu's house which is named after little zuzu bailey from it's a wonderful life but they're not mandatory it's not ticketed events but um of course you have to pay for food at most of the events so um we have to charge a fee but yeah we love to eat people will say i have eaten more this weekend than i needed to eat you know of course we love fried foods we're 
<laughs> we're in Missouri. We'll fry anything that'll hold still. <laughs> you also have a cardiologist convention nearby. We, we should. That should be the next week. You know, yeah, we really should. Wow, that's that is amazing. What kind of vision do you have for this festival going forward, Nicholas? Well, mentioning a while ago that it became the family project. We get real excited in my family when somebody gets married because that's a new festival recruit, you know, and we involve all of our family, cousins, outlaws, in-laws, you know, the youngest to the oldest. Um, my daughter hosts a luncheon the Sunday before the Cherry Blossom Festival for our family as her festival job. Mm -hmm. She collects pink depression glass with cherry blossoms on it and she uses it and we go over everybody's job for the week. So, you know, back to my statement that I didn't really know what long-term was going to happen with the festival from that original festival. My vision is, of course, that we will continue to be hands-on and be involved, not only as a family, but as a community. From the festival has come such local interest, which, I mean, you go out and try to sell to people, we're going to plant cherry blossom trees somewhere where they're not native. And then we're going to invite all these people that have never heard of Marshfield. And these people are like, yeah, right. I don't believe John Boy is going to come to Marshfield or Laura Bush has visited. You know, people say, oh, Laura Bush isn't coming. You know, and now that they've seen these things happen, I love to hear local stories about, I walked into Taco Bell and there stood, you know, Anson Williams from Happy Days, or I went in here, or, or this person came to my school and read a book. You know, they get all excited about it. They've taken personal ownership of it. Mm -hmm. So my vision is the festival will continue to grow. We've outgrown the committee. There's 22 members of the committee. And we had to start the Cherry Blossom Auxiliary, which um, my mother's the president of. And that group is the volunteers of the festival because it takes an army of us to put it on. I and I see that, uh, you know, we started out two days. Now we're three days. Now we really have grown beyond that. We kick off on Wednesday night with a concert. We end on Sunday afternoon with a piano concert. We've grown. I see the festival continuing to grow, continuing to uh, welcome more major newsmakers. Uh, it tickles me when people call and say, can I come? Instead of having to call and beg for somebody to come. Yeah, I bet. Because I've heard from so-and-so or, you know, whatever it is that brings them there. Those, I think that's really important. And so I really see it continuing to grow. And it started out as there were a handful of people. And now I see people from all over the nation. When we can have international visitors, we have people come from England, Afghanistan, all over the place. Um, because if you think about it, a lot of our classic television shows shows that have been popular like little house on the prairie or dallas or things they're huge hits in other parts of the, the world and you know one of laura ingles wilder's largest fan base comes from japan seriously so yes um so you'll see people from all over that come to see these classic television stars or to learn about history you know the autograph show's taken a life of its own so I just continue to see the growth of what's already there. Uh, one of our former first ladies of Missouri had helped start a Dogwood Azalea Festival years ago. And she told me it'll take 25 years before the festival becomes a tradition to the local people, before they take ownership in it. And I've thought of that many times 
before people want to come home for reunions at the festival and all those things. Um, I think we're kind of ahead of those 25 years, but that, that was sound wisdom to remember that it's going to take a while, but we have a high school alumni luncheon during the festival, which brings people home, which has been very successful. We've seen people, local people want to become involved because they want to meet their favorite celebrity or whatever it is, and then they become hooked. So I feel a few years ago, I think it was about 2011 or 12, Jenna Bush visited for the first time. And I always called that the light bulb year. Mm -hmm. um, people knew Jenna from a recent administration. They knew her from national television. And suddenly that was a year that I saw lots of locals become more interested and become involved. Mm -hmm. So I think the long-term plan of seeing it grow into, um, you know, right now everything's volunteer. I, I foresee that someday we're going to need a full-time paid festival director. Our family has discussed starting a Cherry Blossom Foundation that will take care of the festival into future generations. Because um, I, I see it as a long-term positive thing for our community. Okay. and hope it continues to be. Yeah, and not only for your community, but for the country, because as you said, you're really, it's really a unifying event mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. also is a patriotic event. And it is a place where stories can be told and remembered and shared. Yeah. And it's fun. Above all, I would imagine it must be enormously fun. It is. And you know, we call those that are attending the Cherry Blossom Festival, the Cherry Festers. And we look so forward to that. Um, you know, it's, it's Cherry Blossom Week. We're excited about it. And uh, because it's not only a week of, I mean, it's a lot of work, but it's fun because it's like a big reunion. Uh, we've gotten to know so many of these dear friends and we're excited to get to see them. You know, um, my daughter often says she was practically born into the Cherry Blossom Festival and it's like aunts and uncles coming home to her um, cousins, you know, they've watched her grow up and they'll bring her presents and, you know, hug her and say, you know, when are you going to come visit me and we've gone to visit them and it's fun. It, it really is fun. And that's, that's the heart of it all. Wow. Thank A you. good time. That is, that is great. Now you, you don't just do the, Cherry Blossom Festival. You had mentioned that yeah. you are the pastor of a church. Can you tell us a little more about other areas of your life, like your family and your yeah. ministry and some other things that you're involved in right now? So I'm married. Uh, my wife, her name is Sarah. I call her the first lady of the Cherry Blossom Festival. Mm -hmm. She gets voluntold for lots of stuff is what I always say. And uh, she's my right arm person, she works just as hard as I do, if not more for the festival. I, I remember one year asking her, could you cook for about two or 300 people for lunch? What? <laughs> yes, I'll do it. She said, you know, that's, that's the kind of angel I'm married to. We have two children, Reagan, who is 13, Jackson, who is eight. We're doing president names. Catch hmm. on to that. And they both enjoy, as I said, the cherry blossom festival. Then, um, we are involved in many things beyond the festival. Um, I'm the director of the Laura Ingalls Wilder Home in Mansfield, Missouri, where Mrs. Wilder wrote all of her Little House books, which is another way I get to pursue my passion of preserving history. 
I am the senior minister at the Elkland Independent Methodist Church and have pastored there for 17 years. And they are a wonderful bunch of people. I always say that they raised me because <laughs> I was single and all sorts of things when I became a preacher. And um, then community-wise, we're involved in lots of different projects. Um, I'm sitting in my car because I've just left a library board meeting that I'm involved with. Um, when I said we want to, my, my dream was always to make a difference. Um, I really believe that. And I really feel that that is a theme that our family is important to us. And we've tried to instill in other generations in our family. So um, that's, that's a big deal. And, I, and on top of that, personally, we own a historic home in Marshfield that is an Airbnb. We have cabins out behind and have events and things there. So those are kind of our interest outside of the Cherry Blossom Festival, which keep us hopping, but we enjoy every minute of it and we'll do it all again. You know, you're making me exhausted hearing all that you're involved in, <laughs> yeah. but well, I, I do know this though, that when you love something and you have a passion for your ministry, of course, very yes. and most importantly, and also yes. for the Cherry Blossom Festival, just knowing that you're accomplishing wonderful things, bringing people together, making history come alive, just such a, a great thing and getting people who may not otherwise be interested in history involved mm -hmm. by bringing in other people who they know and, and remember and brings them back to times where they were kids and these TV shows were just iconic, you know, uh, I just think it's a wonderful thing. And the fact that you, it's a wow. family thing, you got your family involved and, you know, your wife is cooking for 200 people. I'm surprised you didn't hit <laughs> yeah. in the head with a frying pan. <laughs> she got that. so sick of peeling potatoes. I'm lucky we've been married 14 years. She was probably ready to skin me alive. You know, let, let me add this to what I've said to you. When I was born, I was supposed to be born um, several months uh, later than what I was. I came early. And that's why I was in the hospital for so long. My lungs weren't fully developed. And my grandmother called our pastor, um, our family pastor, who was in Dogwood, Missouri, and he began to contact everybody in the church. And, and this has always been shared with me throughout my life. And they had an all night prayer meeting because my mother and I were not supposed to live through the night. No. And so I've always been told that that was a powerful prayer meeting that um, not only people from our church, but the neighborhood, they all came together for this. And the Sunday that I was dedicated, which was the 4th of July in 1982, my relatives came in from all over the country. People that didn't come to our church came because they all knew this story. And my great aunt said to me years later about this story. She said, I'm not trying to tell you this because I'm trying to put pressure on your shoulders, but we believe that you were sent here for a reason, which I believe everybody was. Yes. But she said, I believe God saved your life for a reason. And throughout your life, I don't ever want you to forget that, that that is a responsibility. And so God has given you a lot and you in turn need to do a lot. And so it was no accident. God saved your life and heard our prayers. And so I want you to always remember that and how you live 
and how you act, the things that you do and you become involved with. And so throughout my life, I've always felt that it was important to give back because much had been given to me and to my mother. And um, I guess it's always been a sense of, of I felt I, I was responsible to do these things, to try to make the world better than what, you know, than you might have found it. Yeah. And so all those things are kind of encompassed into that theme. And I've always felt, um, you know, some people do things just because they're passionate about it. And that's important. But I've also felt that if God sent me here to do something, I was going to do all that I could to do the best that I could at it. And that, I guess, is why I find myself with so many fingers and so many pies. Um, it's because I felt responsible to try to be involved and to do all of those things, That's, if that makes sense. <laughs> it, it makes total sense. You know, I think sometimes we think there's one specific thing that we're called to do when we're called to do something that it's got to be very, very well defined and very specific or what have you. And maybe people like yourself might think, oh, I'm scattered. I'm all over the place. I've got this, I've got that. And uh, it's kind of a, as you said, like history in a blender, there's so much stuff going on, but that in and of itself is so rich. It's like a, mm -hmm. uh, it's just such a unique environment for so much good stuff to go on and interesting things to go on. And I think in part, you really answered this question, but um, I'm going to ask you, what do you want your legacy to be? Oh, I, you know, that's a good question. I just want to have made a difference in some way, um, whether it is to have helped my fellow man with something, um, to have helped somebody through a difficult time, to help somebody um, be prepared for when they leave this world for a better place, or um, as far as more earthly things, I would like my legacy to be that um, I help make our country a better place. And maybe doing that by bringing people together, friendships are always great things, um, or preserving the history of our nation that might've been forgotten. You look at textbooks today, half of the history of our nation has been cut out of it. And I feel like if we don't talk about these things and preserve them, they, some of them could easily be forgotten. Some people who were history makers could easily be overlooked. So I, I really want my legacy to be that I did all that I could to help make a difference in all those different facets. Well, you're well on your way. That's for certain. You've already well, made a huge impact. And you're a young guy. My goodness gracious. You're a young guy. I like that. You are. No wonder I like you. <laughs> I, I have shoes older than you are, Nicholas. Oh, listen. <laughs> 40s knocking on my door and it's a little too close for comfort. So yeah. <laughs> I don't remember go. 40. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's going to be here. Yeah. Well, you've got a lot of energy and a supportive family Thanks. and a wonderful ministry and the cherry blossom festival is something that is just a wonderful thing. So uh, what do you have in store for 2022? I guess that's already in the drawing board. It is. I hope that you'll be there. I hope that happens in 2022 and, and I will issue a public invitation to you now that I hope that you'll come and be a moderator on one of our events. Um, so I'm always hesitant to talk about 
guests because um, when I've done that too early in the past, they've died. <laughs> so I don't want that to happen. Um, but um, yeah, I'm working on the next year's festival already. I'm always working three years ahead. Okay. You really have to do that. But I can tell you that it, it will be another fun packed year filled with all kinds of diverse aspects of history, maybe some new turns and some with some television shows that we haven't ventured into before, which will be kind of exciting. Um, hoping to see some new history projects unveiled at the festival. Uh, I'm working on a couple new plays that I hope maybe will be debuted at the festival. So um, lots of exciting stuff. It's always the last full weekend in April. Okay. So that's a good way to always know how to mark your calendar, but um, it'll be fun. I promise that. Terrific. So is there a website that people can look into Certainly. to get more information? I always tell people the best way to find the most current, up-to-date information is always on the Facebook page. Our Facebook page is Missouri Cherry Blossom Festival in Marshfield Mo, M-O, or our website is cherryblossomfest.com. So I would tune into both of those things. Or if you'd like to learn about some of the people you'll see, um, stories uh, from different aspects of history or um, different pictures from various years, all those kind of things, we have a magazine. Um, it's entitled Our America Magazine, which is put out to further publicize the festival. And it has its own Facebook page called Our America Magazine. And the newest edition is going to be coming out in the next couple of weeks with um, the bluegrass queen, Rhonda Vincent, on the cover. And it'll have some great pictures from this year's festival included in it. So all sorts of different ways to learn about the festival, what's happening, and all that good stuff. Well, you were kind enough to send me a copy of your magazine, and it was enthralling. I loved it. Well, Loved it. I'm glad that you enjoyed it. Um, it's a great gift. So many things that come across my desk, you end up recycling or not keeping. And I've kept every one of the issues because I feel they're miniature history books. You know, they're just really exciting. Well, I want to thank you again, Nicholas. This has been a great yeah. discussion that we've had. And just keep up the great work that you're doing. I, hey, thanks. I just pray that God continues to bless you with energy because you have thank a lot of it. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I appreciate your encouragement. And again, applaud what you're doing to preserve history and storytelling, because uh, it takes all of us to preserve the history of a great nation. That is true. And thanks again. And Nicholas, have a great day. You too. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. So for all of our listeners, keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.